Chapter Twenty One of Mystery of a Handsome Cab by Fergus Hume, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Three months afterwards, a hot December day with a cloudless blue sky and a sun blazing down on the earth, clothed in all the beauty of summer garments. Such a description of snowy December sounds perchance a trifle strange to English ears. It may strike them as being somewhat fantastic, as was the play in A Midsummer Night's Dream to Demetrius when he remarked, "'This is hot ice and wondrous cold fire.' But here in Australia we are in the realm of contrariety, and many things other than dreams go by contrary. Here black swans are an established fact, and the proverb concerning them, made when they were considered as mythical a bird as the phoenix, has been rendered null and void by the discoveries of Captain Cook.' Here ironwood sinks and pumice-stone floats, which must strike the curious spectator as a queer freak on the part of Dame Nature. At home the Edinburgh mail bears the hardy traveller to a cold climate, with snowy mountains and a wintry blast, but here the further north one goes the hotter it gets, till one arrives in Queensland, where the heat is so great that a profane traveller of an epigrammatic turn of mind once fittingly called it an amateur hell. But however contrary, as Mrs. Gamp would say, nature be in her dwellings, the English race out in this great continent are much the same as in the old country, John Bull, Paddy, and Sandy, all being of a conservative turn of mind, and with strong opinions as to the keeping up of old customs. Therefore, on a hot Christmas day, with the sun one hundred odd in the shade, Australian revellers sit down to the roast beef and plum-pudding of old England, which they eat contentedly as the orthodox thing, and on New Year's Eve the festive Celt repairs to the doors of his friends with a bottle of whisky and cheering verse of old Ang Syne. Still, it is these peculiar customs that give an individuality to a nation, and John Bull abroad loses none of his insular obstinacy, but keeps his Christmas in the old fashion, and wears his clothes in the new fashion, without regard to heat or cold. A nation that never surrenders to the fire of an enemy cannot be expected to give in to the fire of the sun, but if some ingenious mortal would only invent some light and airy costume, after the fashion of the Greek dress, and Australians would consent to adopt the same, life in Melbourne and her sister cities would be much cooler than it is at present. Madge was thinking somewhat after this fashion as she sat on the wide veranda, in a state of exhaustion from the heat, and stared out at the wide plains lying parched and arid under the blazing sun. There was a dim kind of haze rising from the excessive heat, ranging midway between heaven and earth, and through its tremulous veil the distant hills looked aerial and unreal. Stretched out before her was the garden with its intensely vivid flowers. To look at them merely was to increase one's caloric condition. Great bushes of oleanders, with their bright pink blossoms, luxurious rose-trees, with their yellow, red, and white blooms, and all along the border a rainbow of many-coloured flowers, with such brilliant tints that the eye ached to see them in the hot sunshine, and turned restfully to the cool green of the trees which encircled the lawn. In the centre was a round pool, surrounded by a ring of white marble, and containing a still sheet of water, which flashed like a mirror in the blinding light. The homestead of Yabba Yaluk's station was a long, low house, with no upper story, and with a wide veranda running nearly round it. Cool green blinds were hung between the pillars to keep out the sun, and all along were scattered lounging chairs of basket-work, with rugs, novels, empty soda-water bottles, and all the other evidences that Mr. Frettlby's guests had been wise, and stayed inside during the noonday heat. 
Madge was seated in one of these comfortable chairs, and she divided her attention between the glowing beauty of the world outside, which she could see through a narrow slit in the blinds. But she did not seem greatly interested in her book, and it was not long before she let it fall unheeded to the ground and took refuge in her own thoughts. The trial through which she had so recently passed had been a great one, and it had not been without its outward result. It had left its impress on her beautiful face, and there was a troubled look in her eyes. After Brian's acquittal of the murder of Oliver White, she had been taken by her father up to the station, in the hope it would restore her to health. The mental strain which had been on her during the trial had nearly brought on an attack of brain fever, but here, far from the excitement of town life, in the quiet seclusion of the country, she had recovered her health, but not her spirits. Women are more impressionable than men, and it is, perhaps, for this reason that they age quicker. A trouble which would pass lightly over a man leaves an indelible mark on a woman, both physically and mentally, and the terrible episode of White's murder had changed Madge from a bright and merry girl into a grave and beautiful woman. Sorrow is a potent enchantress. Once she touches the heart, life can never be quite the same again. We never more surrender ourselves entirely to pleasure, and often we find so many of the things we have longed for are, after all, but dead sea-fruit. Sorrow is the veiled Isis of the world, and once we penetrate her mystery and see her deeply furrowed face and mournful eyes, the magic light of romance dies all away, and we realize the hard, bitter fact of life in all its nakedness. Madge felt something of this. She saw the world now, not as the fantastic fairyland of her girlish dreams, but as the sorrowful veil of tears through which we all must walk till we reach the promised land. And Brian, he also had undergone a change, for there were a few white hairs now amid his curly chestnut locks, and his character, from being gay and bright, had become moody and irritable. After the trial he had left town immediately, in order to avoid meeting with his friends, and had gone up to his station, which was next to that of the Frettlebys. There he worked hard all day, and smoked hard all night, thinking over the secret which the dead woman had told him, and which threatened to overshadow his life. Every now and then he rode over and saw Madge, but this was generally when he knew her father to be away from Melbourne, for of late he had disliked the millionaire. Madge could not but condemn his attitude, remembering how her father had stood beside him in his recent trouble. Yet there was another reason why Brian kept aloof from Yabba Yaluk's station. He did not wish to meet any of the gay society which was there, knowing that since his trial he was an object of curiosity and sympathy to every one, a position galling enough to his proud nature. At Christmas-time Frettlby had asked several people up from Melbourne, and though Madge would rather have been left alone, yet she could not refuse her father, and had to play hostess with a smiling brow and aching heart. Who a month since had joined the noble army of Benedicts, was there with Mrs. Rolleston, nie Miss Featherweight, who ruled him with a rod of iron. Having bought Felix with her money, she had determined to make good use of him, and being ambitious to shine in Melbourne society, had insisted upon Felix studying politics, so that when the next general election came round he could enter Parliament. Felix had rebelled at first, but ultimately gave way, as he found that when he had a good novel concealed among his parliamentary papers, time passed quite pleasantly, and he got the reputation of a hard worker at little cost. They had brought up Julia with them, and this young person had made up her mind to become the second Mrs. Frettlby. She had not received much encouragement, but, like the English at Waterloo, did not know when she was beaten, and carried on the siege of Mr. Frettlby's heart in an undaunted manner. 
Dr. Chinston had come up for a little relaxation, and gave never a thought to his anxious patients, or the many sick-rooms he was in the habit of visiting. A young English fellow, called Peterson, who amused himself by travelling, an old colonist, full of reminiscences of the old days, when, by God, sir, we hadn't a gas lamp in the whole of Melbourne, and several other people completed the party. They had all gone off to the billiard-room, and left Madge in her comfortable chair, half asleep. Suddenly she started, as she heard a step behind her, and turning saw Sal Rollins, in the neatest of black gowns, with a coquettish white cap and apron, and an open book. Madge had been so delighted with Sal for saving Brian's life that she had taken her into her service as maid. Mr. Frettlby had offered strong opposition at first that a fallen woman like Sal should be near his daughter, but Madge was determined to rescue the unhappy girl from the life of sin she was leading, and so at last he reluctantly consented. Brian, too, had objected, but ultimately yielded, as he saw that Madge had set her heart on it. Mother Guttersnipe objected at first, characterizing the whole affair as cussed humbug, but she likewise gave in, and Sal became maid to Miss Frettlby, who immediately set to work to remedy Sal's defective education by teaching her to read. The book she held in her hand was a spelling-book, and this she handed to Madge. "'I think I knows it now, Miss,' she said respectfully, as Madge looked up with a smile. "'Do you, indeed?' said Madge gaily. "'You will be able to read in no time, Sal.' "'Read this,' said Sal, touching Tristan, a romance, by Zoe. "'Hardly,' said Madge, picking it up with a look of contempt. "'I want you to learn English, and not a confusion of tongues like this thing. But it's too hot for lessons, Sal,' she went on, leaning back in her seat. "'So get a chair and talk to me.' Sal complied, and Madge looked out at the brilliant flower-beds, and at the black shadow of the tall witch-elm which grew on one side of the lawn. She wanted to ask a certain question of Sal, and did not know how to do it. The moodiness and irritability of Brian had troubled her very much of late, and with the quick instinct of her sex she ascribed it indirectly to the woman who had died in the back slum. Anxious to share his troubles and lighten his burden, she determined to ask Sal about this mysterious woman, and find out, if possible, what secret had been told to Brian which affected him so deeply. "'Sal,' she said, after a short pause, turning her clear grey eyes on the woman, "'I want to ask you something.' The other shivered and turned pale. "'About—about that?' Madge nodded. Sal hesitated for a moment, and then flung herself at the feet of her mistress. "'I will tell you,' she cried. "'You have been kind to me, and have a right to know. I will tell you all I know.' "'Then,' asked Madge firmly, as she clasped her hands tightly together, "'who was this woman whom Mr. Fitzgerald went to see, and where did she come from?' "'Gran and me found her one evening in Little Bork Street,' answered Sal, "'just near the theatre. She was quite drunk, and we took her home with us.' "'Oh, how kind of you,' said Madge. "'Oh, it wasn't that,' replied the other dryly. "'Gran wanted her clothes. She was awful swell-dressed. "'And she took the clothes. How wicked!' "'Any one would have done it down our way,' answered Sal indifferently. "'But Gran changed her mind when she got her home. "'I went out to get some gin for Gran, and when I got back she was a-huggin' and a-kissin' the woman.' "'She recognized her.' "'Yes, I suppose so,' replied Sal. "'And next morning, when the lady got square, she made a grab at Gran and hollered out, "'I was comin' to see you.' "'And then?' "'Gran chucked me out of the room, and they had a long jaw, "'and then when I come back Gran tells me the lady is a-going to stay with us "'cause she was ill, and sent me for Mr. White.' "'And he came?' "'Oh, yes, often,' said Sal. "'He kicked up a row when he first turned up, "'but when he found she was ill he sent a doctor, but it weren't no good. "'She was two weeks with us, and then died the morning she saw Mr. Fitzgerald.' "'I suppose Mr. White was in the habit of talking to this woman?' 
"'Lots,' returned Sal. "'But he always turned Gran and me out of the room before he started.' "'And,' hesitating, "'did you ever overhear one of those conversations?' "'Yes, one,' answered the other with a nod. "'I got riled at the way he cleared us out of our own room, "'and once, when he shut the door and Gran went off to get some gin, "'I sat down at the door and listened. "'He wanted her to give up some papers, and she wouldn't. "'She said she'd die first, but at last he got him and took him away with him.' "'Did you see them?' asked Madge, "'as the assertion of Gorby that White had been murdered for certain papers "'flashed across her mind.' "'Rather,' said Sal. "'I was looking through a hole in the door, and she takes him from under her pillar, and he takes him to the table, where the candle was, and looks at him. They were in a large blue envelope, with writing on it in red ink. Then he put him in his pocket, and she sings out, "'You'll lose him,' and he says, "'No, I'll always have him with me, and if he wants him he'll have to kill me fust afore he gets him.' "'And you did not know who the man was, to whom the papers were of such importance?' "'No, I didn't. They never said no names.' "'And when was it White got the papers?' "'About a week before he was murdered,' said Sal, after a moment's thought. "'And after that he never turned up again. "'She kept watchin' for him night and day, and cause he didn't come, got mad at him. "'I hear her sayin', "'You think you've done with me, my gentleman, and leaves me here to die, "'but I'll spoil your little game. "'And then she wrote that letter to Mr. Fitzgerald, and I brought him to her, as you know.' "'Yes, yes,' said Madge, rather impatiently. "'I heard all that at the trial. "'But what conversation passed between Mr. Fitzgerald and this woman? "'Did you hear it?' "'Bits of it,' replied the other. "'I didn't split in court, "'cause I thought the lawyer would be down on me for listening. "'The first thing I heard Mr. Fitzgerald saying was, "'You're mad. It ain't true.' "'And she says, "'Selt me it is. White's got the proof.' "'And then he sings out, "'My poor girl!' "'And she says, "'Will you marry her now?' "'And says he, "'I will. I love her more than ever.' And then she makes a grab at him, and says, "'Spoil his game if you can,' and says he, "'What's your name?' and she says, "'What?' asked Madge, breathlessly. "'Rosanna Moore.' There was a sharp exclamation as Sal said the name, and turning round quickly, Madge found Brian standing beside her, pale as death, with his eyes fixed on the woman who had risen to her feet. "'Go on,' he said sharply. "'That's all I know,' she replied in a sullen tone. Brian gave a sigh of relief. "'You can go,' he said slowly. I wish to speak with Miss Frettlby alone. Sal looked at him for a moment, and then glanced at her mistress, who nodded to her as a sign that she might withdraw. She picked up her book, and with another sharp, inquiring look at Brian, turned and walked slowly into the house. End of chapter 21 Read by Sibella Denton For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org